Good morning. Um, again, I want to say thanks to one other person, Wayne Wolf. If you were here last week, did a phenomenal job opening the text and giving us an overview of Peter's life. It was very helpful, helpful for me to remind me who is this guy we're reading this letter that he wrote so many years ago? A little backstory, a backdrop about it. And Wayne did an extraordinary job. I, I want to ask you a question, at, at, depending on your parentage and mine. Did you have a, a mother or a father or a grandparent that said, had sayings? that they said all the time. Did you? Do you remember any of them? What were they? They, they kind of told you things. What were they? So one more time. Many hands make light work. So when the lights go out, everybody raises their hand. You know, bad joke. What else? What? Because I said so. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Nope. Be sure your sins will find. Isn't that an encouraging, cheery parental <laughs> advice? Yeah, yeah. And you still remember it, right? Yeah. What else? The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Good adage. Oh, goodness. There are people starving in Ethiopia. Clean your plate. Why that made a difference? I don't know. What else? Cleanliness is, well, I agree with that. <laughs> is that wrong? <laughs> so my father was, had a litany of sayings. I wrote a, a tribute, a book to him uh, after he retired many years ago. I won't, I won't do the whole list. Uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Uh, by the yard, it's hard. By the inch, it's a cinch. He beat that into my brother and me. We had this uh, in Atlanta, Shambly, Georgia. We had a uh, red clay dirt cellar. Not a basement, it was dirt cellar. The house was built on a slope. And he tasked my brother and me to expand that cellar so he could store stuff in it. Now, of course, I was five years old at the time. In my mind, we moved at least 80,000 tons of material. It was probably four wheelbarrows, but in my mind, it was punishment and punitive. So Steve and I would fill up a wheelbarrow and we'd roll it down this half acre yard. And there was a big hole down there, so it was a good place to move the fill dirt. Uh, well, he would sit there watching us. And of course, what do you do when you're a boy? You want to get through the job. So you fill this wheelbarrow as high as you possibly can, go about three feet and dump it. And then you got to clean it up. And he would just sit there on his shovel and go, by the yard, it's hard. By the inch, it's a cinch. I can still hear him. I can still see him saying it. It haunts me to this day. Uh, he would say, company is like fish. The first day, it tastes good. The second day, it's tolerable. The third day, throw them out. Put the tools back where you found them. Turn the light off when you leave the room. Any of you hear that besides me? I still hear it in my head. Turn the light off. And then, and then the follow-up was, who left the light on? And then the third follow-up was, I can't wait till you get to pay your own electric bill. Don't confuse other people's problems with your own. He says it all the time. And... The last one I'll give you is, the reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. And I appreciated that one. The reward of work is not the end of work. It's not living for the weekend. When I would have a job in high school, I can't wait till Friday. I can't wait till I'm done. Get the weekend off. He goes, boy, you're wishing your life away. You're wishing your life away. The reward of work is not the end of work, but the work itself. Now, Growing up with these sayings, I promised I would never abuse, disabuse my children the way my father did me. But as I matured, and I realized the wealth of knowledge he was giving to me, it became my job in life to bequeath them to my children. 
So, of course, they are haunted by the same sayings and many more that I won't repeat. Um, Many of us remember things we wish we could forget, and we forget things we wish we could remember. And the reason I did this little fun exercise is you and I have certain things cemented in our memories for all kinds of reasons. My question is not why they are there. My question is why do you remember them? And if we turn the spiritual thermostat up on this, far more importantly, from a spiritual aspect, what are we bequeathing, not just to kids and grandkids, but to those around us? What's the mantra? What's the thing they know about us? What do they hear from us? Not necessarily repetitive where you beat it, you know, the Dave Letterman form of humor, find one joke and beat it to death for three years, you know, but it's more repetition, restatement, reminder of these principles. And that is what we're weighing into in this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. It's an interesting thing because Scripture is, is uh, full of admonitions, remember, and don't forget. And when you see something that common, you know, this doesn't take a sem- seminary degree. You know what? We're prone to forget. Why are we told? Remember, don't forget, because we're prone to forget. We're prone not to remember. So we're enjoined again and again and again to remember uh, Dick Lucas and Christopher Green's little commentary actually titles these verses, Remember, Remember. That's what they call these, two, these, these three verses, which is a pretty uh, simple way to say, remember this thing. Now, this is a, a two-pronged thing we're going to see in this passage. Nothing in what we're going to look at is new to anyone in this room. The first is a clear comprehension of the gospel. Number one, a clear comprehension of the gospel. What does it mean that Christ lived, died, was buried, and came back from the dead? And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life, forgiven of their sins, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we're to be transformed into something we're not. That's a mouthful, but that's the core of the gospel. He lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead. And we need a clear comprehension of that. Secondly, we need a continual re-education program. Many of you are in fields, you have to take CEUs or CEUs, continuing courses. Medicine does this, engineering does this. Uh, all sorts of fields require you. If you're, if you're in accounting, if you're in education, oh my word, you've got all kinds of CEUs you've got to complete to keep your credentials. And most of the time we dread going through these things, checking a box. My physician friends who have, is it every 10 years you have to go and hole up and do this massive, re, you know, it's just, it's just, what it is, it's academic hazing is what it really is. But you have to go through it because everybody else had to go through it. But even in those difficult reminders, rejoinders, where, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I, didn't, I, didn't, I need to remember that thing because our nature is, unless you have a photographic memory, we forget everything. The problem with forgetting our theology is we always drift left. And I don't mean that from a political left and right, I mean it theologically. We drift away from Scripture. We drift toward experience. We drift toward what we like and don't like. We drift away from the truth that sometimes is hard to understand or to accept in its context. So this passage is simply a reminder of two things, a clear comprehension of the gospel and a continual re-education. I had lunch with a pastor this week and he was bemoaning teaching, and people don't listen, and people don't hear. And I listened to him for a while. I said, here's the good news. You and I will never be out of work. Because people need re-education. Uh, teenagers, young adults, they need re-education. They don't know the stories of the Bible that you and I may have or may not have grown up with. 
The Bible never is shopworn. The Bible is never out of style. It's never out of date. People may approach it that way, and that to me is the fun part, is how do we re-engage? Say, wait a minute, this is a re-education. This is a recertification. This is a reminding, a remembering. Don't forget these things. Well, the apostle, in a very personal manner, and I've, I put this in two points, he gives them a personal commitment about what he's going to do for them and to them, and he makes a personal obligation, a commitment and an obligation, a commitment and an obligation. Let's look at first, uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. His critical concern is very clear. I will always be ready to remind you. Not to bore you with the, the, the language and the verb tenses, but some of these things to me are helpful. The idea, I'm always going to be ready to do this. If you read through several English translations, you'll see how they try to explain this. I mean, cursory, yeah, I'm going to remind you. Peter's saying a whole lot more in one strophe. My job, my commitment to you as an apostle is to always be ready to continue to keep on reminding you no matter what. Only one other time is it found in our New Testament in a future tense. And it's an interesting way Jesus uses it. Matthew 24, 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. What's Jesus saying? You are always going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. My goodness, if you are a news junkie uh, or even a casual reader or observer of the news, what are we worried about? China and North Korea and Russia and China, South and North Korea. We're all, you know, built, they're building islands. China's building islands in the ocean that are claiming their, their territory in international waterway. When have any of us in this room, whether you're in your 20s or in your 70s, not heard of wars and rumors of wars? We're always on the edge. We're always on the brink. Interesting, our Lord and Savior said this 2,000 plus years ago. You will always be hearing about. Now, back to Peter's use of this little bit cumbersome language. I'm always going to be ready. I will never stop. I will eagerly talk to you about the gospel, and I'm ready to remind you of this thing. Don't know if you had opportunity to watch the Billy Graham funeral service. If you have not, I would encourage you to schedule a time in the next week or two, DVR it, whatever you can do. You can go onto the Billy Graham Evangelist Association website and you can watch the service. It's a 90-minute service, but there's over two hours of video. It is compelling. Uh, I was up at, actually at the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove uh, outside of uh, Asheville, when they had the funeral service just a couple hours away, I was actually teaching a seminar at the Billy Graham Training Center uh, to uh, some military couples. And so I wasn't invited, but had I been invited, it would have been conflicting because that was the first weekend they started their conferences. So I'm holed up in this little cabin they have for speakers and musicians and that, that type of thing. And they have very few TVs on the campus, but they do have a TV in this room. And I sat there, I thought, I'll watch it. I was like glued to the television. I could not stop listening. His children telling their stories, oh my word, it'll, just, it'll wreck you to hear the kids' stories. Um, and then the post-production, if you will, they had four cameras at the exits of this tent. It was like 40 degrees. It was miserable for those people. They had to be like three hours ahead of time to go through security because the president was coming. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal. But when they were exiting, 
They had all these cameras stationed. Most of it was not aired, but a lot of it was you know, on the B-roll, so to speak. And hearing these men and women, many of whom you know, Christian celebrities, Christian musicians, Christian authors, leaders, pastors of huge churches, they stood in line to talk to these you know, Graham Association cameras, telling them why they were there and what they were taking. It was, it was, it was mind-boggling. And I'm sitting there going, here's a man that has been off the public screen for quite a while with his illness. And you know, I'm master of the obvious. The one thing that hit me was his central focus was presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sure, he made a lot of missteps early in his ministry, and we could talk about those endlessly. But at the core of who Billy Graham was, was to gather these people from all over the world in some location and relate the newspaper of the day to the gospel and their need for Christ. Who knows how many millions of people were exposed to the gospel and will be in heaven because this guy was focused on one thing. And I watched that program and I was reminded and convicted and reaffirmed and re-encouraged and discouraged and all points of Michael, what's your life about? Are you, as the apostle says, always ready to remind them of these things. Every one of us in this room has a routine. They're not bad. They're just our reality. When we wake up in the morning at a certain time, maybe you're you know, a godly coffee-drinking person. Maybe you're a person who drinks tea. I'll pray for your soul. Um, but you get up, you have coffee, you get ready. Maybe you've got little kids and you've got to deal with them when they start crying. Maybe you've got school children and you're getting their lunches packed and getting their, you know, what powdered and getting them out the door and you're working with teenagers and you got a job and maybe you both work and you're busy and you're going and carpooling and it's a lot of moving parts. Life is routine and it is relentless. Those of you in the medical field, up super early, go to bed super late. Those of you in education, while school's in, you know, you're owned by your school. On and on we could go. You independent employers who work at home, who, who are writers or have a business out of your home. You know, it doesn't, nothing happens unless you work. And the continuity of the routine, it's all good. It's the stuff of life. But when do we stop and go, wait a minute. How am I living for Christ? How in the routine of my life? And these passages caused me to pause. Just a quick reading of it. Look at how many times he uses the word remember or remind. You and my future are uncertain. We may or may not go go through some difficult, hellacious things, but you must be established in the truth that you believe and that you are sharing with people. Peter, Peter notes this to the readers, and by the way, you and me, you already know this, and he says you have been established. Now, we can know a thing and not be grounded in it. And in conversations I have with young men and women in particular who've sort of jettisoned the church for all kinds of reasons, um, well, I just don't know that I believe that. And I'm not blaming uh, student leaders. I'm not blaming churches. There's some tectonic generational changes going on in our culture. This is is the biggest game changer, and we greatly underestimate what this has done to people's brains. Um, There's a book written by Neil Postman called Technopoly, old book, 92, I think. He predicted the whole thing. When technology does for us what what we could have done for ourselves. How many of you grew up with encyclopedias in your home? 
How many of you don't know what an encyclopedia? <clears throat> we had two sets. We had Collier and Worldbook. And if there was a question at the table, one thing I thank my dad for and bless him to this day is we had a question. What about so? Go get the encyclopedia. Well, that was like punishment. But nevertheless, we went over. And in those days, there was an index encyclopedia that you began with because you never know where the topic. And, and the Collier encyclopedia was what, like a four font? I mean, it was the smallest font in the universe, and it had like Latin and German and, and Greek, all this. Free, like, how are you supposed to read the Collier? You know, none of us could read it, but Dad loved the Collier encyclopedias, and they were, they were back in the den there. And then later we got the world books. At least you could read those. Go look it up. Go look it up. When this first came out, that's how I viewed it. I've changed my opinion. I think the tacticity, the tactile nature of getting a book, of reading, of writing does something to our neuroscience and our neuroplasticity that we're losing on this generation. Let's just say that's theoretically possible. When it comes to the Bible, how much more have we failed? So when you're raising your children and grandchildren, getting them in a book, reminding them of these things, they may know about it, but they've not embraced it. One of my kids years ago showed me, I forget what it was called, but you can ask this app any question, like did Columbus discover America or you know, what time is it in you know, Greenville or whatever. And, and she would use this for all answers. And I go, well, that's a cool tool, but are they being established in knowledge? If it's immediately accessible, that's helpful and convenient. I like it many times when I'm going somewhere. Where's the address? I mean. How could you do maps today? Really, how could you do maps today with the evolution of so many roads and developments? You can't keep up. Even this stuff can't always keep up. I love this stuff. Don't hear me dissing it. I just think there's been a, a change of it. Are you established in what you believe? When it comes to the gospel, life, death, burial, and resurrection, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are guaranteed forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Benchmark. Have you embraced it? You can know those words and say, yeah, my parents drove me to a church that taught that. I have a friend who believes that. I don't really know that I agree with that. They have, they have knowledge, but they haven't embraced it. And certainly, no. Look at five websites and you'll get four different views, right? This word established is an interesting term. Um, when I was uh, growing up, my father was a depression dad, born in 1922. And so if you had depression parents, or you is one, um, you never bought anything you couldn't scrounge. You saved everything. If something came in a small crate, you took the crate apart, you put the nails in a little jar, and you saved the wood, because someday you might need it. I grew up with that. I mean, it haunted me for many years. I was kind of that way till uh, probably the last decade. I saved everything until I had to keep moving it. Um, but my father would save everything. So we, you know, the first home we bought, uh, 1980, where is she, six, five? What, what, what year did we buy our first home? If you don't remember, we're in trouble. 85. Little tiny uh, 1,400 less square foot Fox and Jacobs home. Some of you from Texas, we call them Fox and Jacobs. Anyway, um, we bought this little house. And my father and mom come to help because they're great helpers. And he says, we got to build, build you a workbench. Okay, let's build a workbench. Uh, understand, the Christmas before, he gave me a Christmas present. He gave me a bench vice. That's my father. When I turned 16, he gave me an ohm meter. And the rest of you who don't understand this, it's okay. Just, you know, I'm an old guy. I mean, this was, this was my dad, you know. He, this is what you got. It's like getting a hammer and a, a tool kit, basically. So 
we got to build a workbench for the vice that he gave me, this bench vice. Well, we don't go to Home Depot, Lowe's, or Builder Square. We scrounge around and find lumber to build the workbench. And it was a work of art when we finished. It looked like something you'd found in a junkyard when we were done. But we built it out of two-by-four scab lumber. We, didn't find, we had a sheet of plywood that wasn't quite big enough, so we piecemealed it together. And I had a hole like this big in the middle of my workbench. And Dad goes, well, you know what that's for, don't you? I go, what? That's for the garbage can underneath. Ha, ha, ha. It was just my dad. You know? So I had this hole in my workbench. We put the vice on it. Literally, if you put the bench would come off the floor. The vice weighed so much. So anyway, dad goes back to Houston and so scrounge. Michael, I'm driving around, a lot of new homes. There's piles of lumber they're putting in dumpsters. I find some two by twelves and two by sixes. I take them home, I drill them out. I put them all around the legs of that thing. I put these giant lag bolts through them, reinforced it. You could have put a Volkswagen on that vice and that bench wouldn't move. Because what did I do? I established it. I established it. It could not be moved. Are you shored up? You know something. Are you established in it? Do you know that you know that you know? Peter, as, by the way, a reminder, he's dying. We're going to see in a moment he's going to acknowledge this, and he wants us to be established. So many, I believe, young people are walking away from the faith because they were never established. No one came along and put two-by-twelves and two-by-sixes theologically and bolted it to their faith and said, this is why you believe what you believe. And Peter, in his dying breath, is saying, you must help them be established. It's a frequent theme in the New Testament. Luke chapter 22, 32, Jesus speaking, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The word strengthened is the same word Peter is using, establish your faith. Who's Jesus saying that to? Peter. When Peter's adamant that he'll never deny him, he'll go to the death with him. And Jesus says to him that your faith may not fail and that you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you think the apostle, when he's writing this, is recalling what happened to him? And now he's, I do, he's carrying out this, my job is to establish you. Jesus gave me a spiritual dope slap when I failed him, and he gave me incredible mercy when he restored me. You, Peter, established them in their faith. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now to Christ, same word, who is able to establish you, to build a system around what you believe so that you know it. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. We sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen, same word, and encourage you to your, as to your faith so that no one will be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. I think another mark of maturity is knowing none of us are going to escape affliction. I think when we're young, it's not bad or wrong. We just, it's sort of, it's out there. We watch our parents and grandparents age, but we're really not concerned about it. I wasn't concerned about it as a kid. I was invincible all through college. Um, my mom is, is nine, she'll be 91 on November 22nd. She's in uh, the hospital right now. They're going to probably move her to palliative care this day. Or, she, she maybe have 
36, 72 hours to live. My dad died eight years ago last week. And it's an interesting chapter because, and I was sharing with some of the uh, friends this morning, uh, I, I talked about this a lot last year in First Peter. Where did we ever get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? And, and, and one observed, I don't think we thought about it. We were just hoping. That's a good, good observation. I don't want to be maudlin to those of you in your teens and 20s and 30s. I don't want to be maudlin or discouraging. But life is a routine that just consumes us. It's not bad. It's just our, our horizontal experience. And Peter the Apostle is, is, a, is an apostle and a statesman and a churchman and a friend saying, I want, I'm committed to you to remember this is really personal. I'm about to die. And until I draw my last breath, I want you to know what you know, what you know, what you know, what you know. I want you to be established in that faith. It's a simple message, but we forget, so it needs repetition. D. Edmund Hebert wrote, security lies in maintaining their position. Security lies in maintaining their position. I was a rock climber in my teen years, and I took lessons from an extraordinarily gifted climber. Backpacking and mountaineering and climbing and cross-country are all completely different sports. And rock climbing is, it's not, if you've not done it, it's nothing like anything you could ever imagine. It's a very arduous, tedious, geometric puzzle. It's very slow. It's very pain. Repelling is what you see on television. That's not rock climbing. That's recreation. Repel, uh, climbing is a very precise technical thing that you do when you go, whether it's a horizontal, a back, uh, you know, layback, whatever you want to call these things. Um, and you use crampon, you use uh, chalks and blocks and wedges and ropes. The ropes, you're not climbing the ropes. The ropes are simply there to protect you when, not if you fall. And you're what's called on belay, where a person below has got a rope and he or she is secured into something that's not going anywhere. And then as you go up and use a chalk, they used to use pitons, they don't let you do that anymore for good reason. So you got a crack and you put this thing in the crack and you put a cramp, we all use crampons or uh, carabiners now for keys. That's not what they were designed for. Uh, they were designed to climb and you put the rope through the carabiner and then you climb as far as you want to fall. Meaning when you reach to that next crevice or crag or whatever, you're gonna, if you fall, you're going to fall as far as your last piece of protection. Make sense? It's, it's, a, it's really good for people that are ectomorphic and really strong. People that are big and strong don't do as well as climbing. Wiry, you know, beef jerky looking guys and girls are better climbers because it just works that way. And you're hanging on nothing. These movies, when these people are jumping, that's, that's Hollywood. Um, but what you're doing is what's called a three-point move. You never reach any farther than three points are secure. So you want to have both hands and one foot before you do this, both feet and one hand before you do that. And that position of climbing illustrates perfectly, I think, what Peter is saying here, what Hebert is saying here, security lies in maintaining your position. You cannot reach and extend to grow if you're not well-grounded in three points. Now, you might on occasion do two and not fall. Good for you, Yahtzee, right? But if you have three, you're never, even if you lose the foot or the hand, you're not going anywhere. 
And believe me, even though you're roped in, you don't want to fall on that side of that grant, Texas granite or Colorado granite and get all skinned up on your knees and elbows and hands as you slide down and people below are holding on for dear life that they don't go with you. And then they laugh at you because you were stupid. You want to be maintained in your position. The personal commitment is to remind the personal obligation then from the apostle is explained in verse 13 and 14. I consider it right. As long as I am in this, now our text says earthly dwelling, but earthly isn't there. I'll read it anyway. In this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of a reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter's acknowledging his time is running out. There's a wonderful set of uh, opinions on how he knew what the Lord Jesus had revealed to him. I don't think that's really the, the point of the passage. He says, I know I'm going. I know my time is short. But Peter in this passage says, I've got a duty, and my duty is to remind you. I've got a personal commitment to remind you, but even more, I've got a duty. I've got an obligation. I'm going to fail if in my last days, weeks, months, year, I don't remind you all the way out the door. Wayne, again, did a wonderful job. If you weren't here, you can go to the Stonebridge uh, Bible page and uh, we post all the messages uh, right, right away. They're probably a, a week or two out, but I think we have all seven or eight of them up there by now. And listen to his passage, to, to the passages. But he walked through Peter's life in a helpful way to say, this is, this is who this guy is. We could spend a lot of time in John 21, 17, where Peter's restored. And in that precious scene where Jesus is talking to Peter, who no doubt feels terrible, if you love me, you'll tend my lambs. You'll shepherd my sheep. You'll tend my lamb. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it hurt, it hurt Peter's feeling. Lord, you know I love you. And the threefold opportunity to say I love you out loud paralleled the threefold opportunity when Peter, I don't know him, I never knew him, and curse, I have no idea who this guy is. Leave me alone. Well, Peter refers to this earthly tent. Again, dwelling place is the word. Some of your Bibles use the word house. Um, the HCSB uses temporary earthly dwelling. They don't want to, they don't want to give you lots of room. The, the word um, dwelling would be an easy word for the first century reader. They wouldn't know what that meant. It was a tent. They, they, just like if you say, I'm going home. Everyone else goes, oh, you've got something that's brick or vinyl or a combination of brick and vinyl or a task. We, we, we have a picture of our mind what it means to go home. They knew what a dwelling was. A dwelling wasn't a hole in a, or a cave. The First Testament nomenclature, a dwelling was a tent. It was a portable home. They didn't have uh, homes like we envision today. The same word is used in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 by the Apostle Paul. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. What's he talking about? If we die. If this temporary tent is torn down. But he goes on, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Jesus made it clear, Peter, your tent's about to fold. It's coming up soon. Which made him all the more determined to have a duty so that we don't forget, that we remember. 
Um, you hear the euphemistic phrase when someone is diagnosed with cancer or they've gone through chemo or radiation. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you have a close family member, a loved one, and they'll say, you need to make arrangements. That's an idiom. That's a euphemism. What does it mean? You're going to die. Go home and get ready to die. Well, how do I do that? Well, you check your insurance. You, you know, have an executor, all the legal things. But isn't that an interesting Western way of sort of glossing over and get ready to die? Make arrangements. Put your things in order. What, they're not in order right now? Put them in order. Uh, Cindy and I had this ongoing uh, collegial debate about passwords. I use a password protector. And um, she doesn't. And her passwords are who knows what. And I say, woman, if you die before me, I'm going to live in a box. And I'm going to go behind Best Buy and find one of those boxes that has mylar on it because when it rains, I won't get too wet, you know? I mean, if you don't give me your passwords, I'll never know where anything is because she manages all our money, which I think is actually a conspiracy. Um, but we need to put our house in order. Make arrangements. Do they know your passwords? Do they know how to get onto your computer and find things out? Richard Baxter wrote, Man always knows his life will shortly cease, yet madly lives as if he knew it not. Again, I don't want to be maudlin and depressing. It's the apostle statesman Peter saying, Is your the theological life in order? Have you made arrangements that you know what you believe and you're firmly established in it? And as I'm going out the door of this earthly experience, I want you to know that you 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 know what you believe. This is why grandparents have such incredible power over their grandkids. Because you can read them a book. You can tell them a Bible story. And your kids are gone when you got them anyway, so they never need to know. Just love them and talk about the Lord and talk about your experience with Christ and talk about how he's been faithful and talk about the difficulties and totally diss their parents because you're a far better grandparent than they are, right? They're going to they're love you with a special, unique love. Finally, Peter declares this diligence, verse 15, and I also will be diligent if any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Diligent is a funny word in Greek. It's the word spudadzo, spudadzo, spudadzo. It means hard work, haste, and hurry up, spudadzo. Expedite the process, spudadzo. I spent 20 minutes, it wasn't worth the time, looking up for the etiology of why Speedo took the name Speedo. My guess is they knew this, they were doing homework and came up with this Greek word, spudadzo. Spudadzo became Speedo. Because in athletic wear, you want to hasten, hurry up, and expedite the process. You want athletic wear, I could be totally wrong, all right, write that in pencil, but I, my, my guess is it sounds too much like the Greek word spadazo, speedo. Um, three lessons I want to give you, and I referenced this a couple of weeks back, but I want to show it to you now, because th this to me illustrates in a, in a twisted way, um, we can look at the Larson cartoon, a twisted way, you need to know what you believe, and you need to be established in it. And if you don't get this cartoon, I'm, I apologize. I love this cartoon. Because the, 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 the back story is there's arguments about what's what. So he's got a paintbrush, house, dog. I love the one, the, the, the dog. 
the tree, shirt, garbage can. Now that should clear up a few things around here. Do you know what you believe? Are you established? It's, there's no debate. When I say the house, this is what the house is. When I say the dog, that's what the dog is. Do you have that same framework theologically? Three lessons. Number one, do you know him? And do you know that you know that you know that you know him? There should not be a scintilla of doubt in your faith. Sure, we have times of doubt. You wouldn't be human. But are you sure that you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone? Is it cemented? Is there a benchmark? We've talked about it before. Is there a stake in the ground? I don't have the date and time. I know when I was 15, when the lights went on, when I heard John 3.16, and I know in my college years when I began to grow and I saw life change that was inexplicable apart from something besides Michael. And over the aggregate of that time, my life's changing I'm not the long-haired, hippie, uh, uh, drug-using, intoxicated, licentious idiot I was as a teenager anymore. My life's changing. Was I perfect? No. Still, still I'm not perfect. But I began to change dramatically, inexplicably. I would say it again, and I'll never tire of saying it. He loves you. He died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. You do not have to be good enough to get to him. He was good enough to come to you and me. It is by faith, by trust, by putting your belief in him to do for you what you can never do for yourself. Do you trust him? And when you take that step from here to there, you go from death to life. The threshold isn't nearly as intimidating anymore because eternal life begins. Do you know that you know that you know that he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from dead? Jason's uh, package of music he picked this morning underscores it perfectly. The songs we sang underscore it perfectly. Are you sure? And if you're not, I want to say for Wayne, for me, for the steering committee, for anyone you've seen up here, our number one concern is that you are settled, that you know Jesus Christ. Wayne shared this week he was able to talk to a young man on the phone about his spiritual journey and what it means to know Christ. And that's what we want to be about. That's the first step. Peter's saying, do you know? And he'll never tire of reminding people. Second lesson, is your faith established? Do you have some two-by-sixes and two-by-twelves shoring up what you believe? Now, we're in this, this crazy time right now where the numbers, the statisticians, those who study things and trends, are arguing that young men and women are leaving the church at the highest numbers ever, and the so-called evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing population of the U.S. Is, is going down the drink. And they may be right. When you talk to young men and women who are kind of drifting away from the church, there are lots of reasons why. Some of it's the old structures that we hold dear in a church. Uh, one of my dear friends, who's, he'll be 84 this October, uh, he built a church with a $2 million pipe organ. Well, he's 84. That's what's important to him. I would never build a church with a $2.4 million pipe organ in it to find somebody who can play the pipe. I'm not, I don't like, it's not that I hate pipe organs, but when I hear an organ, I think of a roller skating rink. I don't know about you. Organs are a tool of a time that was very important. Today, this is more the pipe organ. So there's form and function. There's things that we settle on. But 
as young people move away from systems and, and thought processes that, that those of us, say, over 50 have, we need to ask the question, uh, how can we help them? Not that they're wrong or we're right. That's a fool's errand. But how do we help them become established in their faith? A big part of that may be, honey, go find, go find a good church. That I just hope it opens the Bible. I just hope you're meeting with some other people your age that are actually reading the Bible and not some book about the Bible. That's fine to read books about the Bible from time to time. I love that. But your main staple should be, are we in the Word? It's God's Word, God's Spirit who indwells us, and God's people who help shape us, right? You've heard that before, God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. Are you established? Um, a friend of mine, I violate a principle, I never do this, but it was the only way I could get access to his uh, his document this morning. A friend of mine, he's uh, five or six, six years older, Dave Gibson, Dr. Dave Gibson. He's been a pastor, a missionary. He was a smoke jumper when he was a young guy. His, his dad was a, a legendary firefighter in the, in the wilderness. He, his dad's known as Hoot Gibson. And if you lived in Montana or Idaho or Alaska, uh, Hoot Gibson, he passed away. He's a legend. This guy's a living legend. And so this is his son, Dave Gibson. He's, we've been friends for 30 plus years. And Dave is retiring. He's been a pastor. He's been a missionary. He's been in Africa. He's been in Alaska. He's been, he, he started a church in a, uh, in a Mormon area where it, there was no other evangelical Bible church up in Idaho, and it became the largest Bible church in that area. I mean, he's a fascinating cat, got a wicked sense of humor. Uh, Cindy and I and a couple were with him in Dallas a couple weeks ago, and um, one of them asked him, what are you going to do now, Dave? Because he's, he's, he's retiring from East-West ministry and moving to Idaho. And he, he said, well, I've I've started an inter-mountain ridge runner ministry. I'm looking at him. An inter-mountain ridge runner ministry. Okay. And he has 37 goals. And sitting at this Mexican restaurant in Dallas, without a piece of paper, he starts telling us some of his goals. And the four of us are sitting there with our mouth hanging open. And um, he's got this weird sense of humor that I like more than Cindy. Uh, he's got this title, beginning date, supervisor, God. Sub-supervisor, Kathy Gibson, that's his wife. Salary, whatever God gives me. My mission, to exist to glorify God by catalyzing spiritual transform- transformation in myself and others. Sort of like what we just read. My reminder, expect God to use me. Duties, love God with all your heart. Two, pursue Jesus continually. Three, love Kathy exactly like Jesus loves his church. Four, love others like they were me. Interesting phrase. Starting with my kids and grandkids. Five, love myself well. No self-contempt, no self-pity, no learned helplessness. Six, love, encourage, help, model, and mentor for my kids and grandkids. Seven, love, encourage, help, model, and mentor younger people God brings to me. Eight, love, encourage, help, model my peers and longtime friends. Nine, listen for the exact shape of what is next in my life. Ten, write spiritual, spiritual transforming, catalyzing material. He's a great writer. Eleven, preach spiritually transforming, catalyzing messages. On and on he goes. Backpack with my friends. Backpack with my grandchildren. Hike with my friends. Just Silly stuff he wrote down on a piece of paper. The four of us sat there going, when have you put a piece of paper and a pen on a table and written down five things you want to do deliberately, intentionally, 
with your marriage, with your family, with your friends. The apostle is pleading, I will remind you. Not only will I remind you, it's my duty. And if you die and you don't remember, turn the light off when you leave the room, boy, I failed you. What are your kids going to say when you and I die? Number one, do you know him? Number two, is your faith established? Number three, who and whom are you reminding what? Who and whom are you reminding what? Um, Again, we're all at different stages of life, and we're busy with good, important things. Whether you're in your 20s without kids, whether you're single, you're still in school, whether you've got a house full of kidlins you're trying to raise and get on the right track, wherever you are, ask and answer the question, whom are you reminding? Are you established? Do you know what you know? Do you know what you believe? Are you settled in that? When... Um, my mentor, you can come out, Jason. When my mentor, Floyd Sharp, was one of my mentors, was dying, he'd been in another hospital and his heart was failing, and um, he'd had bone cancer and this that. He was only in the seventies, but um, they needed to do a procedure to try to do an angioplasty on him, and they were very concerned he would live through it. But if they didn't do it, he was going to die. And the doctor's name, who I won't mention, let's call him Doctor Smith was very cautious as he should be, saying, look, you may not survive this, and da 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 Well, Floyd, in this two, three weeks in the hospital, had been sharing Christ with anybody that walked in his hospital room. And um, he told this Dr. Smith, he grabbed his forearm and he said, Doc, I know you're going to do your best. Whatever happens is okay, because I know where I'm going. But I have one request that you investigate the claims of Jesus Christ like we've talked about so many times. That was Floyd's last thing he said. He died in that procedure. What a way to go. Dr. Smith drove 45 miles to come to the patient, the funeral of Floyd Sharp and sat in the back corner with his arms crossed listening to people give eulogies, good words about Floyd Sharp and his life. What physician goes to a patient's funeral? I remind you, it's my duty that you remember and you're established in your salvation.